Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm here with my amazing (laughs) co-host, Ellen McGirt. I love hearing that every week. Alan, before we dive in, we've got a very special guest today. I'll let you introduce them, but I wanted to ask you a leadership next kind of question. Hypothetically, Fortune staff, we actually get to go somewhere. We go somewhere, place amazing. We go on a safari kind of situation. I'm attacked by an elephant. How do you respond? Well, I would get you to the best hospital I could get you to as quickly as possible. You think I would run? No. I think you would stand by my side. I'd be there, Ellen. I would chase that elephant until it left you alone. And this is, by the way, Ellen, not a hypothetical question because our next guest is a man who experienced exactly this, being attacked by an elephant. His name is Tom Siebel. He is a legend in Silicon Valley. He spent four decades there creating companies, really understands technology revolutions as deeply as anybody in Silicon Valley. And he currently runs a company called C3.ai. And I have to say this conversation we had with him was fascinating. It was. It did not go in all the directions I expected in some really delightful ways. But we're going to start with the elephant. So here he is, Tom Siebel. Okay, in August of 2009, I was on safari in uh, in Africa, and one of the things they featured at this encampment was walking safaris. And so I asked our guide if we could take a walking safari the next morning, and he said, no problem. And he explained to me that, you know, if we get chased by an animal, you know, it's very important that, you know, don't run, because if you run, we're going to get, it's not going to end well. So about daybreak, we go out uh, for a walk. There's not much relief in the Serengeti. There's not much in the way of hills, not much in the way of the trees. But there was a tree, a stand of trees about 200 meters away. And there were 15 elephants there, adults and juveniles, that were just kind of ripping the branches off of trees the way that they will and consuming them. And I was taking pictures. And after a few minutes, uh, one matriarch elephant all of a sudden Maybe the wind shift or some, shifted or something, but she clearly saw us and she leans back in her haunches and the ears go back and the trunk goes up and then you hear this bellow. It was just deafening. All of a sudden we have five tons of elephant coming at us at 35 miles an hour. And I can tell you at 35 miles an hour, 200 meters goes pretty fast. So I'm watching this unfold and we're going, you know, 150 meters, 100 meters, guy doesn't shoot. 80 meters, 70 meters, 60 meters, guide doesn't shoot. Okay, 40 meters, 30 meters, 20 meters, guide doesn't shoot. And this thing is coming full tilt. Uh, The guide shoots at 10 meters. And at 10 meters, an elephant is the size of the wall in your living room. Okay, and it's big. (laughs) And, And he misses. The elephant comes up, wraps his trunk around this guy, and just hurls him. Uh, about 10 yards away. He just flies. You can hear the air just concuss out of his body. And then comes running up to me, and I mean not more than 18 inches away from me, and comes to a screeching halt. So here I am standing in front of five tons of elephant, and I can see it. I can smell it. I can remember every second of it. I haven't moved an inch. I'm holding my ground. (laughs) I'm looking at this elephant and saying, okay, what are we going to do now? So then the elephant proceeds to 
knock me to the ground, roll me, punch me, uh, took a tusk through my left leg. Uh, the elephant stepped on my right leg and my right foot came, came off. And uh, I mean, I was taking hits. I was being rolled, punched, gored. I mean, it was just unimaginable. In the next three and a half years, I had 19 reconstructive surgeries. Wow. Uh, I walked mm -hmm. four years later. I had a number of physicians who reached the conclusion that they needed to uh, amputate my leg. And after we had that conversation, I indicated to them that we had no further need for conversation. And uh, so I went down the road and ultimately found a physician team in San Francisco that performed really a number of miracles. And so the foot that is attached to my leg today is my leg and my foot. Today I'm in pretty good physical condition, but it does change your perspective on life and it changes your perspective on risk. And uh, it's not a, um, an event that I would recommend to anyone. No, but Tom, it certainly shows you are one tough SOB. And, and the truth is, we probably should have already known that at that point. You had survived the battles in Silicon Valley for several decades. You had proven yourself to be a, not just an entrepreneur, but a, a very successful entrepreneur. And, and that's really why we wanted to talk to you today, aside from hearing that amazing story. You know, I do want to talk about what you're doing now because you've created this new company, C3.ai. You are helping big companies deal with the, the challenge and the opportunity of artificial intelligence. You say those big companies are facing what you call a mass extinction event. Now, it's not elephants, but that there is something big out there that faces them if they don't make the transformation. Can you describe what you mean by that? Well, we've seen the information technology business grow. In 1980, it was about a $200 billion business. Today, it's about $2.5 And information technology has been adopted by many organizations to do things like personnel management and CRM and ERP and accounting and manufacturing automation. And had they not adopted these technologies, and you know, many organizations were resistant about adopting these technologies, but those companies that did not adopt information technology to automate their businesses, I mean, it would be impossible for them to exist. They couldn't close their books. They couldn't run their plants. They couldn't pay their people. So these were requirements to compete in the 20th century. So now we see in the 21st century that we have a new step function of information technology that's come online in the uh, specifically elastic cloud computing, big data, the internet of things, and artificial intelligence that is changing everything about the way that companies operate. And at the same time, it, I mean, it is a fact that the last 20 years in the Fortune 500, we are seeing a mass extinction event. 52% of the companies that were on the Fortune 500 list in January 2000 you know, they no longer exist. Okay, they've been, they've gone out of business. They've merged. They've been acquired. I mean, where is Westinghouse? Where is Kodak? Where is Toys R Us? I mean, it's almost inconceivable that these companies are gone, but they are gone. So the question is, as we get into this issue of digital transformation, where all of a sudden we have the CEOs of these leading companies like Francisco Storace at Enel, or we look at Charles Koch at, at, at Koch Industries or U.S. Department of Defense. I mean, these organizations are massively committed to digital transformation. And what this is about, this is about the adoption 
of this new generation of information technology to deploy fully AI-enabled applications across their entire value chain to fundamentally change the way that they do business. Now, let's look at retailing. We have what? Order of 10,000 retail outlets that have closed and you know, shuttered their operations, okay, in the United States in the last 12 months, and now it's accelerating. And we have this new generation of retailers like Amazon that are applying elastic cloud computing, big data, and AI to retailing, and they're killing it. Look at Tesla as it relates to the automotive industry. This is about elastic cloud computing, big data, the Internet of Things, and AI on wheels, or Uber, no cars, no drivers, and they're upending that part of the transportation business with these same technologies. Last example would be Airbnb. Airbnb is all about these technologies applied to hospitality, and I believe Airbnb has a market capitalization greater than the sum of all hospitality companies in the world. Have we ever seen anything like this before? Anything that's this extensive, this big, and this fast? Well, the closest thing would be the Industrial Revolution. You know, according to McKinsey Global Institute, this is happening at you know, this digital transformation or post-industrial society is happening at you know 100 times the speed of the Industrial Revolution with 30 times the change. So this is 3,000 times more impact than the Industrial Revolution. This is a big global event and it is existential. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, I get a sense from the CEOs that I've been talking with that this pandemic is actually accelerating their digital transformation. Companies that weren't that aggressive before the crisis are being forced now to step up for the sake of their survival. Is that what you're seeing? Alan, we're seeing that across Deloitte's client base. The current circumstances are compressing a multi-year period of change management into a few short weeks. Those organizations that have made the investments in digital transformation are today finding it to be a source of competitive advantage. Clients and customers can see who's doing this well and who's not. And there are multiple elements to this. There's obviously the skill sets of employees, the technology platforms, the leading security protocols. But just as importantly, there is a large element of culture. The comfort level of working collaboratively in a distributed environment, the ability to embed purpose and genuine human connection in a virtualized environment to retain those critically important team dynamics and employee engagement. Joe, great thoughts as always. Wonderful to be with you, Alan. And we're back with Tom Siebel of C3.ai. So I want to ask you about bias. When I think about Airbnb is an amazing case of AI and predictive technologies, but criminal justice system has been using it to sentence people improperly. You know, there's all these worries that with a, with a bad or incomplete data set, especially when it comes to race, that you're going to get bad outcomes in these technologies that are going to operate at scale. And that's that's the elephant that's coming at so many of us who are worried about a more equitable society. Do you have anything to say to make that elephant stop? When we think about AI, okay, bias is one of the important topics. And like many technological collisions with technology and mankind, 
there will be positive effects of this and there will be deleterious events that we need to anticipate. When we think about you know commercial and industrial applications of AI, which is where we play, there's kind of two areas, okay? Many, we're, we're just dealing with physics, we don't have to deal with bias, okay? If we're dealing with production optimization, AI-based predictive maintenance for aircraft or tractors or automobiles, there, this is physics and there's no bias, it's kind of all goodness in light. When we think about the intersection, however, we're using AI and particularly deep learning, for sociological systems, there are enormous consequences that, that one needs to consider. You know, for the use, for example, the use of AI in human resource systems. This is very troubling. I mean, what we are going to do is we are going to perpetuate social bias. And I was in a discussion with one of the undersecretaries of our armed services, one of the branches of our armed services with whom we do a lot of work. And this person wanted to talk about us building an AI system for HR, for that branch of the military. And this is going to decide, you know, who they would promote, who they would put in what billets and what have you. And I remember talking to him and I said, you know, Mr. Secretary, this is a really bad idea. You know, honestly, we're not going to do it. And I recommend that you not do it also, because if we do it, we're going to have to read about ourselves, okay, in the front page of the New York Times in about two years, and there's going to be congressional hearings, and it's not going to go well, because I can tell you what the conclusion is, okay? The person is going to promote is a white male who went to West Point, hard stop, okay? We're perpetuating bias. So I think it's very, we need to be very careful about using these systems, for example, in criminal justice. Get facial recognition is, you know, I think, a horribly dangerous technology. But Tom, let me let me interrupt you because I want to make sure I understand what you're saying here. Are you saying that AI should only be used to do predictions regarding physical systems and not regarding human systems? No, it will be used regarding human systems, but I, they're, 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 this is unstoppable. This is like the locomotive, like the steam engine. This is not going to be stopped, okay? And it will be used in sociological systems. But I think that there, the, the issues associated with using it in human systems are very troubling, okay? And this mm-hmm. is a, you know, Alan, you know me a little bit. You know I'm not a really big government guy. I really candidly <laughs> don't have much use for government, okay, at all. That being said, if government does not regulate, we are going to be very sorry because we're going to have wow. to live there. Let's, let's think about precision health. I, I believe the largest application, the commercial application of AI will be in precision health. And it is easy today. It is within, we have the technology today to aggregate, say, the genome sequences and the healthcare records and the health history of the population of the United States into a unified federated image. Now, we can then build machine learning models that will predict with very high levels of precision who's going to be diagnosed with what disease in the next five years. Now. Think about this. If we can anticipate that the people are going to be diagnosed with what disease, we can intervene clinically and avoid the diagnosis. Other areas will be AI-assisted medicine. I don't believe that AI is going to replace physicians, but it will most certainly inform physicians okay, and have them come up with more accurate uh, diagnoses and healthcare plans. We will have certainly genome-specific medical protocols all out of AI. Now, this is all goodness and light, right? Because we're going to live longer. We'll have telehealth. Healthcare will be more generally available. We'll have lower cost solutions that are, that are more efficacious. But what's the problem? Well, we have this insurance company 
or maybe it's a single care provider that have these data. And how are they going to use these data? I mean, do you want to know that you're going to be diagnosed with a terminal disease in the next three years? I'm not sure I do. And I and, sure don't want my insurance company to know. And how are they going to use the? How are they going to use these data? Are they going to use it to uh, ration health care? Absolutely. Are they going to use it to set rates? Absolutely. Who cares about pre-existing conditions when we know what you're going to be diagnosed with in the next five years? You're scaring me, Tom. You're supposed to give us this great vision of the future that AI is going to create. <laughs> That's and you're starting fault. to scare me. Well, this That's is scary stuff. This is scary stuff. And I th so I think that today there are really no guardrails on this. You know, I think some of the leaders in the Senate, like, you know, Mark Warner is clearly a leader in this field. But if we do not regulate AI, we're clearly well behind the Europeans on this. Uh, but if we don't regulate this, we're going to have to live in a very scary place. I wasn't expecting this to turn into a a commercial for government regulation. This, really, this is like the second time this has happened, Alan. And, and this time it's coming from Tom Siebel, who would be pretty much the last person I would expect to be making that argument. The problem, Tom, is the problem, as you know better than I do, because I've talked to you about this before, is that these are big, complicated issues. And government doesn't have a great track record at dealing with big, complex, complicated issues in a regulatory framework. That's true. And and I think that, however, this is an area that if government does not regulate, we will be sorry. Look what's going on with social media. Look what's going on with yeah. suicide rates, depression. Okay. Look what's going on with self-images in teenage girls. I mean, Propaganda. It, I mean this, is, this is a tragedy playing out at global scale. Yeah. So, but from a stakeholder capitalism point of view. Now it's all the rage. And I really mean that not in a tongue in cheek way, like people are really thinking about this seriously. Is self-regulation, should that be on the table? That's right. You don't have to be Mark Zuckerberg. You can actually take a more conscious approach to developing this stuff. No, we, we do self-regulate. For example, we will not sell our technology to governments that are not supportive of uh, democracy and individual liberty, okay? We will not allow our technology to be applied. So you won't sell to China? China's out. Hard stop. China's off the list. Okay. And life's just too short now. And uh, I've been doing this too long and China's no fun anymore. Plus, they clearly were engaged in you know, non-kinetic warfare with China on in AI. And uh, this is a war that we do not want to lose. And I am not mm -hmm. here to facilitate China. We will not uh, agree to allow our application to be used uh, in any manner that can perpetuate social bias. So we just do it by a licensing restriction. Okay, so we don't sell to China. We won't allow it to be used where, where, where it perpetuates social bias. And uh, I remember another application, for example, that came across my desk that uh, was for the United States military, uh, where they wanted us to use AI for uh, target identification acquisition. Simple problem. It's a simple deep learning problem where you know we can identify a target is a MIG or is a 737, maybe three orders of magnitude faster than a human being. And then can we acquire the target? That means you know that means lock onto it. Again, we can do that three orders of magnitude faster than a human being. And then I got to the last page of the spec and it said it wanted us to pull the trigger. I said, you know, there's just no way, no way. Not going and uh, that, you know, so any sort of, when you get into these, these defense systems, you need to make sure that you have a, a human in the loop. I was curious about the COVID piece. I don't think yeah. we've really dug into the COVID piece, which is probably one of the most urgent 
issues facing us. And one of the best ways of exploring the bright light, how do you describe it? That's beautiful and sunshine. I, I forgot the phrase that you use. <laughs> Goodness oh, and light. really good. Goodness, Goodness and light. light. Goodness and light. Well, tell us about the COVID-19 data lake. You'll, you'll recall that in February, March, April, we saw all of these organizations beginning to publish these data sets like um, Johns Hopkins, okay, the World Health Organization, and CDC, and NIH, and MITRE, and others. And so there are about, you know, 60 of these data sets around the world that are all, each of them are discrete, so they're not correlated. But one of the things that our platform does very well is allow us to aggregate very large sets of structured and unstructured data into a unified federated image. So what we did is we took, say, the top 60 data sets, and this is the largest corpus of COVID data available in the world from China, from Korea, from the World Health Organization, uh, from uh, MIT and others. And we aggregated those data into a unified federated image and we provided in the C3 ut utility and we've made it available to researchers around the world for free. And we recently uh, announced a, a COVID grand challenge where we have basically $200,000 in prizes out there for people to use this data set to develop new techniques, wow. okay, and new insights from these data to inform decision makers. So I think the first prize is $100,000, there's two second prizes of uh, $25,000 and four third prizes of twelve five. And I think we have 100 organizations participating in it today and uh, that should be wrapped up about December. And so the, um, you know, I'm quite confident that that also will result that, in positive contributions to the dialogue. Yeah, that is really impressive. It's really big. It's bigger than an elephant. Uh, uh, <laughs> look, I, I don't want to let you go, Tom, without getting you to talk a little bit about the Siebel Scholars, because I had the honor of spending a weekend with you and the scholars a couple of years ago. Uh, and I, it's one of the most fascinating weekends I've ever spent. Uh, you were talking about intellect a minute ago. What a brilliant group of people. Can you tell us what it is and why you did it and what you get out of it? Siebel Scholars is just been the experience of a lifetime. We formed this, we formed Siebel Scholars, as I recall, in 1999. Okay, and the, today it consists of about 20 leading uh, research institutions around the world, graduate schools of business, okay, Stanford, MIT, etc. There are about 2,000 Siebel Scholars in the world today. What happens is the dean in each of these research institutions, each of these graduate schools picks the top five students based upon academic merit each year. They get a $35,000 scholarship to finish their last year of education and then become part of the Siebel Scholars community. And Alan, you're part of the extended family of the Siebel Scholars community because <laughs> and you, none helped of those us, agree. you helped us Aww. one year at Stanford. And we have these amazing conferences. The first conference we held was in 2000 at the University of Chicago. The subject was the threat of nuclear proliferation. We had, um, who was there? Bob Gates, uh, Al Haig. Uh, John Major and Zbigniew Brzezinski. And I think it was, uh, I think our moderator there was uh, Charlie Rose. And you and I got together a couple of years ago at Stanford with a, with a bunch of our scholars and we talked about uh, the ethical implications of AI, which was just a fascinating yeah, dialogue with uh, Gary Kasparov and others. So Siebel Scholars is a community of, I think, almost 2,000 people today. These people have gone on, the CEO of Google is a Siebel Scholar. 
uh, many leading CEOs around the world of the Siebel Scholar. And we have this community, you've been there, uh, very bright, very interested, very engaged people who you know want to do the right thing. And uh, you know we have a very powerful phenomenon with the Siebel Scholars community that we can focus for so, so good and I'm not sure we've fully figured out how to do that yet, but we're but it certainly is a lot of fun I, I, in the process. I, I'm sure you will get there. I am so glad that elephant lost in its fight with you. I you know, know, you are you have I big know. ambitions, not just for yourself, but for the world, and the world is is lucky to have you. Thank you, Alan. So nice to talk with you. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 